0: Hi, I'm Paul Gladder, editor of Religion Unplugged, and I welcome you to Religion Unplugged podcast. Today we've got Heather Rice Minnis from Prison Fellowship. And Heather, welcome, and could you tell us a little, a little bit about your uh, role at Prison Fellowship? Sure,
1: thank you for having me, Paul. Um, I am our Senior Vice President of Advocacy and Church Mobilization for Prison Fellowship, and Prison Fellowship is the nation's largest Christian nonprofit, serving people in prison, their families, the formerly incarcerated, Uh, and we're also a leading advocate for justice reform and I've been at Prison Fellowship for nine years, and my role has predominantly uh, been in that advocacy space of pushing for justice reform. But I also get the privilege of leading our Prison Fellowship Angel Tree program, which serves children of the incarcerated.
0: I think we've we've seen a coalition, but between the right and the left, in the round around the last five to ten years, around the concept of prison reform and mass incarceration, I, I noticed it especially when the Koch Foundation started getting interested in the topic. And I'm wondering if that coalition has, you know, stayed the same or if you're seeing any change in it, especially as um, the last couple of years we've seen different categories of crime changing, especially in urban places.
1: You know, no. I would say that same coalition, uh, from what I've seen, is still very committed to advancing justice reform. Um, I think that, you know, there is concern about how do we... Stay the course. We know that the evidence based and values based considerations that we've been pushing for when it comes to justice reform are still relevant and the best choice, even with the uptick we've seen uh, with the murder rate. And so, you know, we've even been gathering with some of those same partners, folks like uh, the Charles Koch Foundation, um, American Conservative Union, uh, Faith in Freedom, and others. To continue to try to strengthen that coalition and messaging around why we need to stay the course on policies that work.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, is there? You know, I remember taking a course in college on criminology, and uh, I just had a. I remember there was like a concept of waves that, and then pendulum swings that for a while society is likes to be tough on crime and. Uh, and then sometimes it swings back to the other side with more reform or softer on crime policies, um, which sometimes leads to then swing back to the other direction. Is that, I mean, is that true? And are we are we in the middle of that kind of a swing? And um, if so, how should, uh, you know, Christian leaders and institutions think about those kinds of trends? Right.
1: Absolutely, Paul. I think that, Crime rates are very complex and our reaction to them as Americans is often very emotional. Uh, for example, um, before we saw this recent rise in the murder rate, the national crime rate had been declining for decades. And we know that, in fact, the 2022 homicide rate was still a 20, 22% decrease from 1991. Um, and that 1991 is the last high point before we've, we've had that decline in crime. But um, Prison Fellowship, we actually commissioned BARNA to survey American perceptions uh, about crime and incarceration, and we asked questions about the crime rate. Uh, We did this in 2017 and have repeated the same poll, and the results always consistently show that Americans believe crime is increasing, even when that's not the case. Um, And we find that that's an even more prominent belief among American Christians. And so, yes, when crime rates go up, I think it's true, that we often cannot resist the urge to ratchet up sentences. Um, and, you know, I would not say, though, that exactly that during times when crime rates are low, that it's resulted in, in softer policies. I would argue, those times it's kind of given the space for policymakers to have the room uh, to do things that are actually evidence based and data driven, to use alternative. Um, to incarceration, uh, to have a little bit more innovation. And I think we've learned a lot from those uh, from, from those decades where we've had a declining crime. Um, and we've actually seen states like Texas who have reduced their prison population while simultaneously reducing their state crime rate. Um, so, you know, I think it's really important for Christian leaders to think about this really carefully and to understand the complexity of crime rates. We know that they're impacted by so many factors um, incarceration sure yes it does play a role um but it's not a role that's outside compared to uh, the economy the drug market uh, the aging of our population um, or or the effectiveness of our law enforcement practices all of these are factors that play a role in impacting crime rates and we need to recognize that disproportionate sentences are not effective, and are actually counter to our values as Christians.
0: Uh, I also wanted to ask, you know, in the last couple of years, especially after the death of George Floyd, and we saw a lot of protests in around the country with slogans like "Beyond Policing." And I'm curious on that front, um, which is different than what we were just talking about on sentencing, but on the the sort of front end policing side of it, um, uh, where does Prison Fellowship see stand, or where do they see uh, those kinds of slogans or memes, and do, do they disagree or agree with uh, that kind of uh, campaign?
1: Right. Uh, and, you know, in our polling, our, one of our questions we asked this last year was actually about uh, reallocating resources to, from police to community organizations and gave um, that among a list of other potential police reforms. And that was the least selected by Americans. So I think, you know, those sound bites have gained a lot of traction in the media, but I don't think they're actually very reflective of Americans' perceptions overall of what needs to happen. And I would say for prison fellowship, regardless of what partisan sound bites are being used, prison fellowship, prison fellowship wouldn't always seek to stay true to our values. And we've been advancing more proportional punishment, constructive corrections culture, and second chances for over 45 years. And since the death of George Floyd, we, we did begin uh, to use that experience from our work on justice reform and our experience um, as a uh, prison program practitioner to form up a position on policing. And um, of course, we recognize that an effective police force played a, a very valuable role in maintaining public safety of uh, the community. We think that a restorative approach to policing uses Proven crime reduction practices and promote the community participating in the solution. And I think, you know, what we've seen, though, is its legitimacy of police authority requires not only that proactive prevention of crime, but also provision of meaningful accountability where community trust is broken. Especially where force is used, it's imperative that those actions are limited to what's actually needed to promote public safety, and reflect individual
0: dignity. It seems like there's some measures that a lot of Americans can agree on, and then there's others that are much more sort of uh, polarizing, I guess.
1: I think that's right, and I think there's, you know, so many terms that are polarizing that put you in, you know, a a camp of one or another, and it's hard to have really meaningful conversations about those kinds of reforms, even where Americans, regardless of, you know, what party we are, Agree. Uh, we found that the number one selected reform among the list we gave in our poll was um, greater training um, for police. And so p- greater training, um, looking at the use of force, um, as well as accountability, um, are all priorities within Prison Fellowship's um, position on policing.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, some of, the, some of the ideas out here in the New York area, I, I saw people talking about, well, we just need less police and less guns from police that we need more sort of traffic cop types and and um uh or or uh, mental health workers instead of police etc and the voters of New York i think by electing a cop former cop eric adams as mayor uh gave a resounding defeat to some of those ideas um and that was very interesting uh you know it, it was the working class voters it wasn't the uh uh that that i think were part of his base of support. And it seems that uh, citizens uh, settle these kinds of things at the voters' box. And sometimes I wonder, is it more sort of progressive um, elites or, or wealthy voters who are trying to impose their views about policing um, on communities where it actually matters more? <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. You know, I, I think, um, as I mentioned, our our polling seemed to show that some of the most popular sound bites weren't reflective of, of the majority of American opinion, right? Um, but I also think there's, um, requires some more nuanced conversations because I, I think a lot of Americans would be supportive of more um, community-based uh, or social services. Um, and I think a lot of police, when we talk to them, um, are, are doing jobs. Their their role is not designed to do, right? They are becoming crisis intervention teams for mental health uh, breakdowns and that kind of thing. and um, But I I don't think – I I think we've put ourselves into a camp like you have to have one or the other versus um, really utilizing the best of of both worlds. Generally, we we do know organized retail theft is reported to be up 57%, which is a lot. Um, But overall, property crime has decreased um, by 4.5%. Um, And so I think the the story we need to look to is that actually jurisdictions where it's easier to uh, evade prosecution, they're seeing that high increase. That's where the highest increase is coming from. And San Francisco is one of those cities. Um, San Francisco PD reported that only 2.4 of all larceny cases actually resulted in arrest and court hearings. So, you know, I think there continues to be a lot of critics of Prop 47, but there's really lacking Data to make any definite conclusions that that's causal, if you will. Um, And uh, you know, another thing I was looking to when I I saw that question is there's a a report Pew put out in 2018 about reducing theft penalties without impacting uh, that that doing that did not uh, impact public safety. Um, And there was some discussion that organized retail theft may increase slightly, but overall yeah you know, there's really not data or research to support that those involved in this larger retail crime are the same individuals involved in property threshold crimes um that were you know a big push of the reforms that we saw earlier
0: uh-huh okay interesting so prop 47 uh in your view just to kind of resummarize that because that that is the prop that uh some conservatives seem to be pointing to as You know, what caused this rash? You're saying it's not necessarily, we're not sure if it's causal or not. Um, And and are you not sure that should be changed, that proposition as a policy recommendation? Yeah,
1: that's right. I I think that there's some important reforms in there that were really the crux of it. Um, Changing the property threshold is something that, um, for for the felony threshold for property crime, um, is something a lot of states needed to do uh, to um, really. Kind of come into the 21st century and, and deal with inflation. Um, and, and those, the folks who are, are getting charged with that are very different than the kind of folks who are involved in organized um, retail theft. And, and that's what we're seeing in San Francisco. And so, what I'm saying is, I think the more important thing in San Francisco is um, that, uh, or the more important factor in why we're seeing this increase is that pr- there's not um, enough arrest and prosecution happening not that the laws on the books are wrong does that make sense
0: mhm mm-hmm. okay and um uh well, you know I, I was out in California last summer and that's when I started you know hearing more about the conversation on prop 47 and I I met one ministry leader that works with homeless populations and and mm-hmm. who was a little frustrated by it. he said that um when you reduce arrests for petty crimes that it, he thinks it prevents people from sort of hitting bottom and, and, you know, whether it's it allows people who are trapped in criminality or prostitution or drugs or theft rings to uh, avoid um, reform for their lives or facing punishment. And I was just, that struck me and I was curious um, your thoughts on that idea. Yeah,
1: I think the the main value that we really centralize at Prison Fellowship is that punishment for a crime has to be proportionate. It's gotta be a just response to the offense committed. Um, So, you know, we certainly think that even um, uh, crimes like theft um, or um, some of the other ones you mentioned, uh, they cause harm, right? (laughs) And so there does need to be accountability for that. Um, But I also think um, the swiftness of accountability, the certainty of the accountability, um, as opposed to just the severity of the um accountability it is actually more important so i think um it is true and i think that there is you know a valid point to be made that if someone feels like i'm just going to get away with this and i'm invincible right that they're going to continue on that path right mm-hmm. when they really need um, that opportunity just to uh um, hear from someone you know that this is actually causing harm but um when i think about incarceration i mean i'll give a personal example if that's okay if I, uh, yeah. My nephew uh, is incarcerated, and he was involved in property and drug crime, and when he first went to prison, I started writing him letters, and over time, um, shared more and more about what I was doing at Prison Fellowship, and shared about how my home, when I lived abroad, had been broken into, and that, you know, to this day, when I travel, I usually, alone, I keep a light on in my hotel room, because um, I woke up with this man in my house, and uh, I remember he wrote me back and he was like, you know, Auntie Heather, it's, I've never thought about the faces of people I'm stealing from because I don't see them. And the system had kind of made him very immune to thinking about the actual harm he caused. Uh, and it was like him against the state, if that makes sense. And um, I think that, the, you know, there are so many more effective ways at some of those petty crimes Um really pointing people in the right direction, and I think if we could do more with engaging victims who want to, um, to talk about the harm, for people to look into the face of someone that they've taken from, um, or the face of someone who's had, you know, a son or daughter die from a drug overdose, I think we'd see a lot more change in the people that we're locking up.
0: How do you see it when you hear statements on these topics that are, that are not um, factual,
1: Right. You know, it's absolutely so important that people um, understand data and evidence and and really do dig in because, um, as we were talking about before with the crime rates, right, um, oftentimes we have very emotional reactions to crime. And um, they're not always based on fact, and they're not always based on best policy decisions either. Um, And as Christians, if we believe that every human being is created in God's image has inherent dignity, and value, um, then, you know, we, we have a duty to uh, seek justice, to correct oppression, um, and to do that in a way that um, honors the inherent dignity and value of every person. Um, that includes um, officers um, in blue uniforms, and that includes um, those who are perpetrating crimes, and it includes victims. Uh, and so, you know, we care deeply for those who are policing communities and those who are perpetrating and those who are suffering from crime um and so you know i I would encourage um uh christians in particular um i think prison fellowship is a a great source of information on these things um you know we've had some great dialogues with some of our supporters who have seen some of the reforms we have been promoting and perhaps have heard um you know some some misinformation have reached out and we've been able to share with them the data that supports why uh, we're asking for a particular reforms, and why we shouldn't uh, jump to um, giving someone a lengthy sentence uh, in certain cases. And so, I think that's really important that people navigate that um, on both sides uh, of, of um, partisan media. I think you can hear um, things that are, uh, you know, not on point as, as it relates to facts, and so you really got to dig in and. Um, have sources that are, 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 are looking to do that, um, especially, I think, when it comes to uh, race, it can be really difficult um, to navigate that. Um, we, we do know that white Americans um, are less likely to be subject to the threat or use of actual force by police
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, compared to black Americans and Hispanic Americans. Um, and so, you know, there, there's ways to sort of parse and look at the data about use of force with police. Um that lends to a talking point on one side or the other, if you will. Uh, and so we've got to be really careful with that.
0: Yes. What, um, you know, we've had some polarizing years um, and, and just uh, in presidential politics, and I'm curious to hear your assessment of, mm-hmm. you know, both the Trump years and the Biden years and, and the two major parties. And um, do you sense that we're seeing um, – uh, Collaboration on some of these issues we've been talking about, and sort of positive movement forward. Or, 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 in your sense, has there been some some setbacks?
1: You know, there's there's still with um like are you saying starting with the Trump administration or
0: yeah, yeah I'd say first yeah. Trump and then now with the Biden yeah
1: yes okay so you know I've been at President fellowship for almost a decade and uh, the first step Act which President Trump you know, I is touted for as leading and so forth and he deserves a lot of credit for that passing. Um, but I, I've been working here for a decade and that bill existed under the Obama administration under a different title and they tried to pass it and it did not go through and um, so, one thing I would say that I've noticed um, over these last 10 years is that oftentimes, um, at least in Congress, uh, folks want to be able to give uh, their president of their party the credit for the reform that passes. And criminal justice is such an interesting issue because it's one of the last bipartisan issues left, I like to say. Um, but I find it much easier to, to move big reforms forward often um, under a Republican uh, president. And I believe some of that's due to the fact that, you know, I think Democrats have really um, – owned this issue in, in many cases um, over the years, and Republicans have an interest in it, I think, from for, for um, different, but, uh, different reasons, but they come to the same conclusion sometimes on the reforms that are needed. Uh, but oftentimes, I think, you know, when a Republican president's in office, they feel like they can get credit and kind of change the game on uh, who is thought of as leading on this, this issue, who gets to own the issue. And so we didn't see the First Step Act Uh, get through under the Obama administration despite efforts to do so. Um, And then uh, President Trump helped in a big way to ensure that there was enough conservative support for the legislation to be pushed through. I think he gave a lot of cover for folks to be able to vote in favor of it um, who were on the fence. And um, so that was super helpful. We also, right before he left office, we were able to get through um, a big reform uh, to restore uh, Pell grants, uh, uh, Pell grant access to incarcerated students who wanted to pursue higher education in prison—that had been abolished in the '90s. And uh, over and over again, legislation that was only Democratic, we support or only supported by Democrats, had been introduced in you know session after session and went nowhere. And um, Secretary DeVos was supportive of it. Um, President Trump was supportive of it, and right before he left office, we were finally able to get that through. And so, you know, 25 years after incarcerated students have not had access to Pell grants, that's now being rolled out. And you know, with the Biden administration, this is that thing he certainly campaigned on, um, and I think is a priority for him. Um, but um, I think some folks, particularly those uh, progressive allies we work with, who uh, were really hoping for him to go big, have been somewhat disappointed. Um, And, you know, I think he needs some more time to to move things through, and I think he's made um, some steps that we've been encouraged by. He's, for example, those who have come home um, due to COVID from federal prison and have uh, stayed out of trouble and have, you know, tried to move on positively with their lives um, in home confinement. Um, He is allowing them to uh, stay stay home uh, and there was fear that they would be sent back. Um, and he left this kind of hanging as a question <laughs> for quite some time until a lot of the coalition kind of rallied and said, you know, let, let's, you know, give, give these folks a definitive answer and if they've really um, demonstrated that they are safe in the community, um, let, let's allow that to move forward. So that's one thing he, he's just recently changed. Um, our biggest priority at the federal level right now is the EQUAL Act. And we really hope to see President Biden lean in even more to engaging on pushing that forward. Um, When he was in Congress, he actually helped pass um, the law we're trying to overturn. And he has, you know, come out saying that uh, he he does now see that as a mistake. He sees that as a mistake that we have harsher penalties for crack cocaine as, a pair, as compared to powder cocaine, mm-hmm. and we know that you know that has had a really disparate impact on black defendants in particular. Uh, and so we're trying to um, make the ratio in terms of how we calculate your penalty for crack versus powder cocaine, we want it to be equal. Mm-hmm. Right now it's still, uh, you can have 18 times the amount of powder cocaine as crack cocaine and get the same sentence.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, the, and then the other thing I've kind of I noticed, I was looking up Coke Foundation to see if their positions on anything had changed. And then I came across, you know, sort of posts that from the progressive left that were attacking them, saying, well, they you know, they they, they seem like they're interested in um, prison reform, but we don't trust them. And, you know, they don't go far enough and that kind of thing. And, and it made me wonder if that's widespread, those kinds of divisions. Um, if President mm-hmm. fellowship faces criticisms from from some groups that um, uh, you seem to be working in the same direction with,
1: yeah, you know, you asked me about um, the kind of right of center coalition. Are they still together? And I would say they are, but I, I and and they have that hasn't changed. You know, the key players um, that we've worked with over the years remain the same. But um, I would have answered differently if you were asking about sort of the the nature of bipartisan coalitions. Um, prison yeah. Fellowship still works in a very bipartisan way. I think many of our colleagues do, but I think the formality of working in a bipartisan manner um, has changed. I think a lot of folks, you know, are kind of um, working out of their own corners and speaking to their base um, in a way that's reflective of their values and messaging. And, and, you know, I think we've made a lot of strides towards reforms that we all agreed on. And I think we're at a point now where there's such um, just political divide, right? And um, and there's a push from um, those on the, on the far left, you know, for, for more than I think um, many on the far right uh, believe is, uh, you know, the best policy uh, for public safety. And so um, it, it's kind of like, you know, over the last 10 years, we've had some of the low-hanging fruit and had some success. Um, And people have been able to agree on those things, Um, but there are differences in terms of policies. And so now I think you're seeing some of that suss out more in terms of um, the comments you mentioned about people not going far enough. Um, Well, now that we've passed some things in the last decade, now we're having to have more of those hard conversations, and um, I think as a result. You're seeing, you know, less formal bipartisan coalitions, and people may be still willing to work with each other, um, but having to have some of those tough conversations about, okay, what do we really, at this point, now agree on? If that makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you can you describe like a couple of issues where that you see as, um, or Prison Fellowship sees as um, too far going? People going, you know, policies that that are going too far.
1: Yeah, in general. Um, we would say, as it relates to, um, um, well, I, I, you know, one example that comes to mind for, is, is what we were talking about earlier, like evading prosecution um, on things. We're just saying, hey, we're not going to charge at all on this. Um, we're going to put our hands up. Um, you know, that is that's um, a recipe for, for some of the, the high crime outcomes we're seeing, right? Um, so we, we would say, you know, every... Um, crime um, should have some form of accountability. And if it doesn't have swift and certain accountability, you're going to see a rise in crime. And so, um, sort of taking our hands off and saying, we're just not going to prosecute these kinds of things. Or these these things are, um, yeah, there are categories of things we would say, you know, don't, uh, perhaps, you know, should be handled with alternatives to incarceration or in the civil system. but. Um, Overall, I think there's too much of a movement now towards um, really going back to that question we had earlier uh, about folks feeling invincible and um, not having any sense of accountability for things like that um, that do cause harm.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, I recall um, discussions on Twitter around, uh, you know, uh, people realizing a lot of, violence happens at traffic stops when someone's resisting stopping or resisting arrest or something. And I heard some people saying, for example, well, why do we, maybe cops just let people go and we shouldn't care about traffic stops. And, you know, that, that, to me, that wasn't one where I thought, hmm, if we do that, we just sort of start to lose rule of law in general, you know?
1: Right. Exactly. Well, and, you know, there have even, um, I've had conversations with people who are prison abolitionists. Um, That's too far for prison fellowship, (laughs) Um, you know? Um, And I I think kind of uh, that's similar with the question you asked on defund the police, right? Like when we speak in these very absolute terms, I think um, we're really at risk of, of, yeah, losing the rule of law.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I I really appreciate you um, spending time having a conversation with us about these topics. Um, It's really... Interesting, I know prison fellowship and has been working on this front for so many years, so thanks again, Heather, for joining us today.:
1: Oh, my pleasure, Thank you so much for having
0: me. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of the Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at ReligionMag.